I was grateful for Sid Coop last week. Is Sid here today or is he traveling around? No, he's not here. He travels a lot. So uh, for his um, explanation and jumping into Mark uh, chapter 9. And today I'm fo- focusing on a very well-known passage in the middle of Mark, which I will get to in just a second. If you have your journals, then I want you to write the number 1. Just write the number 1 in there. You might want to do it quite large because uh, we're going to be coming back to that in, uh, as we go throughout this sermon, the number one. There's, there's one need. There is one need that mankind has, and uh, we're going to scratch into that a little bit today. And, and, and it's, it's, it's completely obvious. You look at our culture, you look at our society, no matter where you are in the world, different cultures, there is one need that if you actually pull back and look a little uh, laterally, you can see evidence of this need. And, and the need is uh, that, that there is a, a desire after God. There is a desire after God. Now, you might scratch your head and go, you know, I don't think people would agree with you. I don't think that they would say their one need is that, that they need God, but there's evidence of them needing God. You see, I'm not talking about how we've often said in Christian, uh, Christianity that God fills a void in your life. I, I want to I change that a little bit and say that actually the belief and the following and the life in Jesus and God is, is actually uh, fulfilling a thirst that we have, that mankind has. A thirst, a desire, a chase, if you like, one need. And, and we, can, we can see that in how we go about our lives because we create a huge expectation on different events or different parts of our lives in the hope that this will somehow fulfill the desire. So what do I mean by that? For example, there's, there's huge emphasis in, in uh, if you fall in love, then somehow being in love will uh, fulfill this desire, this chase, this pursuit, this need that we have as, as people, if we could just get married, if we could just find that job, if we could just get the house on the lake, or if we could get the boat, or if we could have a, uh, a certain possession or position or, or popularity, then, then this thirst that I have, this desire for more, will actually be fulfilled. And, but something happens, it somehow fails us. Uh, could I just have the lights just dimmed a little bit because I can't quite see? Can I see the, starting to see the red inside my eyes, which is uh, never a, there we go, hey, that's great, thank you so much. Somebody has said that the different aspects of our lives serve as functional saviors, that we place our expectation and hope in certain things in the hope that somehow they will save us, save us from the feelings that we have, the, the ache that we might be experiencing, and so you can actually look at anything and see them as a functional savior. That if we could get that house, we could get that income, we could get that job, we can get that wife or, or husband or partner or whatever. If we can just get that, that somehow this, this thing that I have inside that needs uh, fulfilling, will, I, will find my, I will find my fulfillment. But these functional saviors always fail our heart. We have great expectation and somehow it, it fails us. Uh, as many of you know, I spent the first 30 years of my life in, uh, in, in Britain, in, in Great Britain, and, uh, and it was a joy. I, I, I love being British. I'm Canadian as well now, but I, I, I'm, 
I'm proud of my heritage. I can't escape it. Most days I have somebody saying, oh, I love your accent. And I say, Sarah, you've lived with me for now for 24 years. You just need to... I, I get it. You like my accent. Um, but I, I'm constantly reminded. Um, but there are certain things that being British has created in me that, that have scarred me. Um, certain things have been ruined because I'm British. In fact, this is why Set Free is so good, because we can bring these scars that we need healing from. And, and one of those things for me is, is the whole concept of picnics. You see, picnics always sound like a great idea, don't they? Let's go on a picnic. And everybody gets very excited. Yes, let's, let's have a picnic. We can go and sit on the beach or we can sit on the side of the hill and, and it'll be wonderful. But our expectation and hope of what might happen on a picnic is never fulfilled. Let's be honest, because when you arrive at the beach, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to find a big space as far away as possible from strangers. Just stay at home. You'll be far away from strangers. It's like, well, should we go here? No, that's a bit close. Well, well, oh, are they moving? We'll sit, wait, because if they move, they've got a really great spot. And if they don't move, you sit here and then you just have, you're angry at this other family that are over there. And then the whole blanket thing. If you're in Britain, it's impossible to get a blanket flat on the ground because of the wind. You end up having to dive on it to get the corners. And then you sit here. It's more of as you flip the blanket What happens? You throw sand over everybody else in the beach, and it's just miserable. So I've been scarred. I've also figured out it's absolutely impossible to continue to look like a masculine tough guy on a picnic. First of all, if you take a frisbee, you cannot pick a frisbee up and maintain your masculinity. Because either you have to do the curtsy... Or the leg comes out. It's impossible to, to get it and be manly. But then it gets worse because on a picnic, you end up looking like a 1970s... Right? The front, you've seen the, you know, the 1970s cover model. Because it's just impossible. This is for support. This is for grazing. Your lukewarm Coca-Cola filled with sand, wild ducking footballs and frisbees. This is for grazing. You can't look manly on a picnic. I don't like picnics. I'm sorry. I've been grazed. The expectation always, always fails the fulfillment. You see, we have these ideas that if we could just get that picnic, whatever that picnic might look like, then my life will be fulfilled. It'll just be like lying on the beach with nobody else there, and it'll be wonderful. And yeah, it fails us. Life gets filled with sand by annoying strangers, sometimes annoying family members, let's be honest. You know, and it fails us. And we build these things up that we even teach our kids, if you could just get these things, then you will be fulfilled. And it's Not true. And we know it not to be true. These things have been given to us as gifts that we will see in a second that actually we're not seeing in their full 4K technicolor while we're making them our object of affection. We actually ruin them. And I'll explain more about that in a second. 
We get excited, but we remain disappointed. And we end up with everything that possibly, if we work hard enough, we'll get it. We end up with it all still with this ache and this need, this thirst that remains unquenched. We try and avoid the ache. We avoid the ache by being busy, by redirection. So, well, maybe if I could just get this, I'll not look at that anymore. If I can have this, or we, we start blaming things. If we have this ache, well, if I could have a better boss, or if I could have a better car, or if I could have better money, if I could, and we start pointing fingers of blame as to why it is this, this desire is not being fulfilled, or we start blaming ourselves, we start trying harder, we think, if I could only reach my goals, then this emptiness will be gone, and, and that fails us too, or we blame the universe, or Donald Trump, it's his fault, everything, it's all his fault. You know, when Donald Trump is gone, and he will be gone, or any other uh, president or prime minister, that when they're gone, the ache will still be there. Because we're created for something far more magnificent and beautiful and powerful and significant to fulfill that which we have inside of us. We have one need. And we see this young man who has this need in Mark chapter 10 and, and, and the passage starts at verse 17 and works through. And, and what we have, as I just skim over, I'm going to highlight some verses as we go. We have this young man who the culture would say is truly blessed because that culture, like our culture, please listen, our culture is exactly the same. We've not moved on. We're exactly the same as this rich young ruler his culture would say, if you have all the possessions and the money and potential, and we know that he's, a, uh, that he's a significant character, if you have that, then they believe that was a direct blessing from God. We are the same. We see blessing equated to material possessions or, or, uh, or power or popularity. We're exactly the same. But he has one question. He has one need and he's got one question. He is genuinely concerned about his soul. And he says this, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now before we get too critical, at least he's asking the question. Maybe he's done with blaming others. Maybe he's done with blaming the universe and Donald Trump. And maybe he's done with blaming uh, his circumstances. And maybe he's come to the place where he goes, you know, I think there's something more. And we have to admire that about him. He's at least being proactive in his question. He's running it, the Bible tells us. He kneels, the Bible tells us, and he asks the question. It's very uh, uncommon. It would actually be frowned upon for somebody, to, uh, certainly a, a, a man at that point, to run and kneel. So you have to admire the humility of his heart in asking the one question. What must I do to inherit the eternal Life, And then in verse 19, Jesus answers him. And he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And then verse 20, he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. What's very interesting about his question and the way Jesus answers it 
is it's worth noticing that every commandment that Jesus reminds him of are commandments that you can do in your own strength. What must, everyone, I do to inherit eternal life? You see, he's probably more than likely come from a, an understanding of, of control. That if I do this, then I will get that. If I work hard here, then I will achieve that. If I can do this, it will result in that. If I don't do this, then it will result in that. And so, like our culture, we're drummed into that really your destiny, your future, your savior is in your own hands. If you want to feel better about yourself, then do this. Go there. Join this. Tuck that. You know, change that. Move there. Do So his question when it comes to eternity is framed by an understanding of this culture of control. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers him and says, well, here are all the commandments. And his smug, somewhat arrogant and overconfident answer is, I've done all those. And Jesus is like, I got you, mate. Except Jesus wasn't from Britain, probably didn't say mate, maybe deep in the Greek He's just playing into Jesus' hands. What must I do? See, he's chasing fulfillment through control. He has functional saviors that he has built in his life, worked hard for, and all he's doing is he's hustling Jesus into that, going, well, maybe I could do that as well and just add it to my portfolio of fulfilled dreams. Jesus is like, Well, let's just focus on the do for a second, shall we? You've done all these do commandments. What Jesus hasn't done is actually talked about the first few commandments and the final commandments, which are heart commandments. They're commandments of the heart. You cannot just honor God above all else by your own personal discipline. You can't do that. You can't just stop coveting the final commandment. That's a position of heart. It's not a goal or a to-do list item. Today, I'm not going to covet. Okay, all the best with that. And then the second that you see a really nice car that you want, or a house, or a relationship, or a job, or a bank account, and that coveting just comes back because it's a position of heart. You see, when the heart is not wrapped around these things... That's when the beauty of the things themselves come out. You see, if we make these things that God has given us in our life, our our possessions, our family, our positions, our career, please listen to this, it's really important. If we make those things our savior and, and make them everything, then we actually lose the joy of them because they control us. The Bible says that they enslave us, that we're suddenly slaves to the thing. Think about it. Think about all the families and relationships that have been sacrificed on the altar of money, ambition, and career. Think about the families that have been been sacrificed on the altar of of, uh, relationships even. That this relationship's not fulfilling me. I'm going to go and have that relationship. You see, so when we make the 
functional saviors, the, the things, our goal, we actually lose the joy of them. Whereas God's intention is, as the scripture says, that, that, we, that Christ is in and through and for all things, that we've been given all these wonderful things, our relationships, our, our possessions, our family, our position, in order to make much of Jesus. And by doing that, that position of heart where we see Jesus is our heart attraction rather than the things, the things become better and more beautiful and more incredible because you're not holding so tight that you're desperately trying not to lose them. You can actually hold them with an open hand because you've already got what your heart needs, which is Christ himself. Freedom comes. Wouldn't it be nice not to worry about money in your bank account? Wouldn't it be nice not to worry about your family? Wouldn't it be nice not to worry about your neighbor who's just obnoxious and annoying? Wouldn't it be nice not to worry about your marriage? Oh, Glenn, that sounds good. You can have it all. Because you make those things the object of your affection and you think those things are going to result in your joy, then you will continually find joyless, empty frustrating living, but if you make Jesus the object of your joy, the commandment of the heart towards Jesus, then those things suddenly, what's the scripture say? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. So he has one need, he has one question. This next section hit me once again in In Technicolor, this is such a beautiful scripture. After the man has answered in a somewhat arrogant and self-confident way, I've done all these things. (laughs) Not a problem. Give me my eternal life, Jesus. Verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. This word look actually means to look intently, scrutinize, it means. Examine, he looks at him. So much so, remember, this is an eyewitness account. So the way that they're describing this look reflects on how memorable the look must have been. You see what I mean? There must have been something about the look of Christ that day that planted into Peter's Mind, because remember, Mark is writing Peter's memoirs, if you like, his memories. So Peter remembered the look. There was something about the look. It was a look not based on merit. It was a look of love, not based on anything that young man had done. He would got a self-righteous, possibly overconfident man, and Jesus looks at him with love. See, this look is not based on anything he's done. This man has done nothing to deserve this look of love from Christ. And yet, Jesus looks intently at him, knowing what's going to come next. This man has done nothing to deserve the love of Christ. And friends, neither have we. Neither have we. Remember, this is Peter's memories given to Mark. And so in Luke chapter 22, there's another description involving Peter. So this, before we get to that scripture, let, let, me just, let me just frame this for you properly. Peter, 
Um, Mark's gospel is, is Mark being like a, a ghost writer, if you like, for Peter. Some people would say it should be called the gospel according to Peter. It, it's Mark writing on behalf of Peter, and Peter is giving these memories uh, to Mark that many of the other apostles and, uh, sorry, the other gospel writers actually use Mark in reference because Peter was Jesus' right-hand man. So at the end of his ministry, Peter is saying, Mark, the way Jesus looked at that man reminded me of something. Luke chapter 22, verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. It's the same look. It's the same intent look. Peter recognized the look that Jesus gave to this young man because he had had the same look himself. At the lowest point that Peter's life could have gotten, he has ripped into Jesus in the sense of he has denied his friend who had spent three years sitting around campfires, laughing, joking, learning, saying, I will never forsake you. I will do anything for you, Jesus. And then moments later, a little girl challenges him and he crumbles as Jesus is led away. And after his denial, I don't know him. Can you get any lower? Verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what Peter must have felt? We're given some inkling by his response. Because it says later he runs and he weeps. What have I done? Jesus looks at Peter. Jesus looks at Peter with the same look of love. Put yourself in Jesus' position for a second. You're looking at somebody who is committed. and Some of you need to hear this. I did. Peter's just let him down. His closest friend, arguably. Betrayed his trust. Has done something he said he wouldn't do. When Jesus needed him at the most, he just literally turns his back and destroys Jesus. Imagine you, maybe you have a family member or a friend or or somebody in your world who has let you down dramatically. And even just the thought of this person makes your heart race a little bit more. Your blood pressure goes up a bit. How do you look at them? How would I have looked at Peter if I was Jesus? I think I would have thought, I knew it. I knew you'd do this. Do you know what I think in the looking at the big story of Jesus' life? Do you know what I think? I think Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And I think, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised that Jesus probably thought, upon that rock, I will build my church. I love that man. 
And even though he doesn't know what he's done right now and the implications of it, I love him and I will build my church upon him. That's what I think Jesus did. And the reason I think that is because there's evidence in the New Testament of what happens after. But I think he thinks that because I think that's what Jesus looks and thinks when he looks at my life. Not that he's going to build the church on me. I'm not talking about that. But I think that even at my lowest point, that Jesus can look into my life and see hope. And he can see joy. And he can see the future. And it's almost like, man, if he could just know what I think about him. But I think what I do is I look at my life through the lens of what I would be thinking if I looked at me. Because there are times, friends, that we look at others in the same way, right? See, Jesus is motivated by love in the middle of our failure. At your best day, he loves you. At your worst day, he loves you. At your best day, he looks and says joy, hope, expectation on your life. And in your worst day, if you know him, if you believe in Jesus, then he will look at you and he will say, upon that rock, I will build my church. Upon that person, he's a minister of my reconciliation. She is an agent of my love in the community. He's got one need. He's got one question. He's had one look from Jesus. Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. One thing. He had one need. Not to work harder and do more. His one need was for his heart position to change. And God will use circumstances. He will use anything he wants in your life to highlight the heart situation. Your heart state. Something that you are desperately trying hard to make sure that other people don't see, that other people don't recognize, that you've done a great job of projecting this, uh, this, this fake you. Jesus comes into our lives and he says, okay, I'm going to use anything to highlight your heart to yourself. See, this young man knew the truth about himself. What does Jesus ask of him? He says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Was Jesus giving us an instruction that we should sell everything that we, and give it to the poor? No. No evidence of that in the New Testament at all. Is he slamming rich people? No. No evidence of that in the New Testament either. Is he saying that what he has is a sin? No. What he's saying is, is your heart position is wrong. He highlighted with one question this man's heart position. And he will do the same for us, friends. It might take one event, one phone call, one situation, one friend, one family member, one little incident for Jesus suddenly to highlight the true state of our hearts. And then in verse 23 it says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, 
how difficult it would be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why does Jesus say this? Because this young man, it says, some commentators would say this is the saddest verse in the Bible. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Commentators say the saddest verse in the Bible because it is the only example in the New Testament of somebody receiving a direct call, come follow me, and then walking away from it. Why did he walk away? Because his heart had been highlighted, his true state of his heart, not what he'd done, but where his heart laid was with his possessions, his functional saviors, his idols, and he went away sad and sorrowful because he was unwilling to lay those at the feet of Jesus and say, yeah, I will follow you. And so Jesus says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Why were they amazed? Because they equated wealth with blessing from God. Disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Because remember, they they see wealth as blessing from God. So if Jesus is saying, Hang on a second, wealth actually is a huge hindrance to coming to God. Why would Jesus say that? Is he down on the rich? Is he saying rich people don't belong in heaven? Let me tell you, self-righteous Christians love to judge those that God has determined uh, to have wealth. Love judging them and saying, well, it must be at least I'm poor and I'm going to go to heaven. Unlike them. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's about the heart again. It's about holding the wealth with a non-negotiable fist rather than holding with an open hand and saying, how can I use my wealth to make much of Jesus? And by the way, the fact that you live in Kelowna puts you in the 1% bracket of the world when it comes to wealth. So we're all rich. In fact, we're sat here this morning proves that. How difficult it is because the hand is firmly clenched around what we see as our savior, our material possessions. So he says it's difficult and then he gives this example that actually says it's impossible because you can't get this camel that was the largest land animal that they were aware of through this small gate called the eye of the needle. You, you can't do it and so now they're, they're astonished It says in verse 26. So Jesus has gone from this is is very difficult to actually it's impossible. It's impossible for you to do anything to satisfy your heart and gain eternal life is what Jesus is saying. Let me say that again. It's impossible for you to do anything to satisfy your heart and desire for eternal life. Impossible. So they said, who then can be saved? Because they assumed that the culture was right, that if he was rich, he was blessed. But Jesus is saying, there's nothing you can do. Forget it. 
If you are trying to do something, trying to chase something, trying to get something to get that fulfillment, it's impossible. You will die in the chase. I've said this story a number of times, um, but it was such a significant time for me and a wake-up call that God and His grace wanted to show me was when I visited uh, Chibali in Uganda. And I had the, the joy of being driven out into the middle of the, uh, the banana plantations to go and visit um, a child that we were sponsoring. I was there for doing some other work with a school organization that I was working for at the time. And so uh, bouncing around on the back of this, uh, this, this bike for a long time, right in the middle of, uh, of nowhere, really, as far as I was concerned. I didn't have a clue where I was. Uh, it was actually only 10... Uh, 11 kilometers, but it felt much longer. And the reason I know it was that was because the little girl that we sponsored at the time, she's, she's grown up now and she has, uh, she has a job and is doing great. Um, the, the little girl actually walked all that distance to school every day. Ah, mark that, Luke. 10, 11 kilometers. Now, I'm not just picking on him. I'm picking on him. It's representative. There you go. Like they would do the chores and then they would go to school. And they liked it. They were grateful for it. Ah, mark that too. Anyway. And then they'd walk back and do more chores. So we visited this little girl and her family. And I remember distinctly, because this, this place was maybe a nine foot by nine foot hut. And uh, they had eight members of the family living there. And I went in, and there was nothing in the place at all. The two things that I remember distinctly is they had it sectioned into two rooms, and there was large kind of, um, uh, I'm trying to think my right word, like, like, not trenches, but like divots where the water running through in the wet season just kind of carved its way through the house. You could see it in the... And they had one little stool, foldable stool. And the, one of the gentlemen, one of the, the grandfather, I believe, had a massive tumor on his neck. And he shot up when I went in to give me his stool. And this experience just, I was the honored guest. And they, they asked if I would pray for them. And, and I was like, yeah, how, how, do you, how do you pray into that? And they were so blessed. And we went back, and I went back to my room that in our standards, we would probably go in and go, hmm, really? No, it's not exactly the four seasons. But my room was palatial in comparison. And I went in, and I sat at the end of my bed, and I, and I cried. Why? Because I'm a big wuss? No. I was really angry I was so angry at God I was like that that's just wrong and I felt helpless and I felt angry and I, and I did that whole how can you be a loving God when you let this happen and I was God in his grace just cut through uh, my annoyance and uh, he said, I remember it so distinctly. It's one of the most profound words he's ever given me. He said this, three words, how dare you? I knew, I could feel, I could, I just knew he said it to me. 
And then he said, what makes you think that, those, that you are in a better place than them? See, I look at the material situation and I make a judgment as to whether or not they're blessed. And what do I base that on? It's because of my material. I equate material possessions with blessing, just like this man. And God showed me that their heart, is it right that they live like that? No. We should be doing more. So don't hear that. It's not a shrug. Who cares? Far from it. But you see, God looks at the heart and he told me very distinctly that their heart position, their spiritual life was far stronger than mine. And then he started to show me how actually the people that I live with are in a far more dire position than that beautiful family in the middle of the banana plantation. Because their hearts are in a position of death. That's true death. When we are worshipping those things that God has given us to make much of Him, that's true death. But we don't think it. It's like on a cruise liner heading for certain destruction, completely oblivious. And we need to guard our hearts, church, from that, thinking that blessing is material, blessing is heart position. Where's your heart this morning? Because to finish, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible. All things are possible that anybody can come, that anyone who believes in Christ can come and be accepted into the kingdom because there is one Savior And his name is Jesus. And we heard earlier on that he is a good God. And we think we can do it ourselves. And it's the height of impossible arrogance. Jesus says you cannot do it yourself. You cannot save yourself. You cannot find freedom in yourself. It's impossible. It took the death of a perfect Jesus to bring us closer to God and to change our heart. So it's an arrogant attempt on our part to fill our lives with these saviors, believing that somehow they are going to save us. Jesus says that's impossible. There is one savior. There is one way. There is one possibility. God can do that which we cannot do. And that's why commentators say this is the saddest version in, in, in the, uh, verse in the Bible because he walked away from his one hope, his one possibility, his one way of having his one need met and his one question answered. He went, no, you know what? I'm going to stick with the possessions. I am the way, the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And we have one possibility for us. So if I'm humbly looking in my mind's eye at the congregation we have at the South, some 250, 300 people would call South their home. I think, okay, very bluntly, the Bible categorizes people as lost and found. Pretty unapologetic about that. I think about those of us who are found that we would say that Jesus is our Savior. Here's my encouragement for you and for me this morning. Let's make sure that we hold lightly those things that if we are not careful will cause us to drift away. Let's make sure our Savior is the Savior, the one Savior, that we orient our heart towards Him on a daily basis, that we continually come to Him and seek forgiveness as 
as, as he convicts us. This altar should be full every Sunday with Christians as well as none. Saying, God, help me. I need you. And please, Lord, you need to be my one thing. Those of us who are found need to be in that position. And maybe we need to remember the look of Christ. Maybe that's a word for you this morning. That How are we looking at other people in our world? Do we look with the same look of hope and possibility in those that we think are in dire situations? And maybe we've given up on. Maybe we need to look through the eyes of God at them. And that's a word for me. And then we have the lost Paddling towards Niagara. Believing the boat itself is somehow going to save you. It won't. It's not now, if you're truthful with yourself. And it won't then in the future, because if we're all honest, we know that this is not it. That this world is not it. Are you so sure that the boat that you are sat in is going to save you? When you hit those rocks of life, Because if you're not in the middle of the rapids now, I can prophetically declare it will come. (laughs) Sand will get you in the eye. Remember my picnic? You see, grace is a gift from God, Paul tells us, so that no one can boast. It's Jesus saying, come. Are you going to hear that this morning and receive it? And you're going to go, no. My little paddling boat. My house, my car, my family, my ambitions, my goals, my bank account, my RSSP, my TFSA, my this is going to be it. And then it'll take one sentence, one phone call, one event, one incident, one family member, one friend to let you down. And you'll suddenly realize that this boat is incapable of dealing with that. Jesus says, come. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anchor into me. (laughs) Take you right out of the rapids. Well, you know what? No, I take that back. No, he doesn't. But he gives us a great ability to get through them. And so at the end of of my preach this morning, our tradition is that I invite the worship team back and they will lead us in a song. And and often that is... uh, that's code for we're nearly done, lunchtime. That could be one way of looking at it. Or maybe it's a signal to say, okay, Lord, what is it you're revealing to me this morning? And then at the end, we have community group leaders. We have South Lead Team. We have elders who will be available to, to, um, to pray with you. And maybe that's your opportunity. It should be your opportunity to come and say, pray with me. Pray with me. I, I, I've got hold of the wrong Savior right now. And if you don't know Jesus, that's your opportunity to come and pray with somebody who will helpfully and lovingly guide you through how. And really, it's so simple. Just come, all of you who are heavy laden and tired, and I will give you rest. And it starts with believing in Christ and losing faith. Listen, lose faith in yourself then you find faith in Christ. Father, we thank you for your word.
I've said many times, Lord, and it's so true as we read this passage, that when we read your word and we truly read it, then we find that it reads us. And Lord, I'm sure that many in this room would confess that I am this young man. As we prayed this morning before the service, our brother Brad said the same thing, I am this young man, desperately trying to control things so that I can find hope and rest. Forgive me, Lord. Lord, I pray that for those who are in the room who love you and have dedicated their life to you, Lord, I pray that you would give them fresh revelation of the beauty and truth of the gospel, that you are the way, that you are the ultimate, that, Lord Jesus, that you are the only one that can truly satisfy our deepest desires and needs. And Lord, for those in the room who do not know you, who are placing their faith and worship and trust in things that ultimately will fail them, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself now. And they would ask for forgiveness. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Praise your name, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. So we're going to worship with the team and